As you're being seated, it is my distinct privilege and honor uh, to introduce to you the, the speaker for this morning. Uh, Pastor Tally is out of Long Beach, California, and he is the Old Testament professor of theology at Biola, or is it Talbot Seminary? Both. He's got tons of letters after his name, and uh, I now know what it's like to be Jar Jar Binks speaking to Yoda. It's incredible. Uh, but <clears throat> what I love most about Pastor Tally, incredibly intelligent, but he's got a pastoral heart, and he was out doing one of our equip nights here. And since he was here, I wanted him to jump into Genesis and walk through Genesis 45 and 46 with us. And so um, the best compliment I can pay someone is not how intelligent they are, all the letters after their name, but the fact that Pastor Tally loves Jesus, loves the Word of God, and loves God's people. And so, Dr. Pastor Tally, would you come on up? Now, he's got something on that we call a necktie. Don't be afraid. <laughs> Remember, we're a very loving, gospel-centered people. I'll let him describe and explain the necktie to you. So, look good on you. Well, I, I wore one once, and it, I, I turned blue. I don't know. <laughs> Don't know why anybody would do that. Let me pray for you, and then... <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for another beautiful day yes, Lord. that you created for us. You did really well this morning, yes. and, and we're grateful for it. And now I pray, um, as, as we open up your word, that you'd give us grace, soften our hearts, that we might hear from you. Father, would you give us grace to respond to you, to the truth that even though in this world there is evil and it is horrible, you're so powerful that you take evil and make it into something good to change us, to transform us, to grow us, to look more like your son, Jesus Christ. So I pray this morning that we might see your son high and lifted up and you might form him in us for your glory. Would you fill my brother and strengthen him, and would you fill us to receive from you what you have for us this morning? I ask in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Love Thank you, buddy. <laughs> Thank you. You too. All right. Well, glad you're here today, and hopefully you have a Bible. If you would, open that up to Genesis 45. So let me say just a few words about all the letters after my name. All that means is I had time and money. Anyone can get all those letters after their name. But one thing I've learned through the years is, number one, a seminary degree does not make a pastor. That's a spiritual gift. So you can go and learn about pastoring and maybe need to get into the pastor and unlearn some of the things you learned. But secondly, that all those degrees does not necessarily give understanding of the Word of God. There are so many of you, I can see some gray hair out there, if you have stayed the course and just read God's Word faithfully, you are an absolute Bible scholar. You just understand what God's Word says. And that's really the most important thing for any of us, is to know the message of God. So I'm glad you're here. We're going to look at Genesis 40, 45 and 46 this morning. But let me say a word about my tie. There's a few things I need to say about it. Number one, it's just me. I, on Sunday morning, I get up, I put a tie on or I wear a collared shirt with a sport jacket, one or the other. I mean, that's just, that's just me. That's what I do. Number two, in my church back in Long Beach, we, we are 
my wife and I, my wife's here too. Joni's right out here. Joni, just raise your hand here. My wife and I work with an elderly Sunday school class. I mean, I think when we walked in there, everyone was over 80. I mean, I'm just surprised they all show up the next week. It's like, wow, you're back. Now, since then, we've got a lot of different age groups in there, and the class has grown, and so we get to minister to different age groups. But I know that when I work with older people, when you show up as a pastor, you need to look like a pastor. I mean, that's just the way they feel about it. So I want to look like a pastor, although that's changing in Southern California as well. And then probably the main reason is in what everyone at my church looks for on a Sunday morning when I come in with a tie, they want to know what tie I have on. Today, I have on my Alabama tie, which means the Alabama Crimson Tide won yesterday. And so I wear an Alabama tie to celebrate that. When they lose, like last week, I wear my funeral tie to church. (laughs) And so I wore my black tie last week. And Everybody just wants to talk about it. In fact, I was sitting in my easy chair after the game was over, and I said, Joni, they lost. And then I said, Lord, if the University of Southern California would just lose right now, it would make tomorrow morning a whole lot easier. And praise the Lord, they lost. So people weren't talking smack to me all morning long, and I was grateful for that. The last reason I wear a tie I'm just not cool like Pastor Dave. I'm just not. And there's nothing cool about me. If you spent time with me, you would realize if it's cool, I don't know about it. My children gave me a compliment one day, I think, when they said, Dad, what makes you cool is you don't think you're cool. I thought, okay, I'll take that as a compliment. But we, we've enjoyed our time here. As soon as the second service is over today, we'll be shooting down to the airport and taking back going back to our life in Southern California. But it's just been wonderful. From the time we arrived and, and had dinner at Pastor Dave and Brooke's house, just incredible ribs. I mean, it was so good. Uh, I still dream about those ribs. From when we walked into the church building the first time and Jan met us at the door to Christine, I think, is the one who orchestrated all of our schedule and told me about Theory Coffee or Coffee Theory, whatever it was. It's a cool coffee place. I went down there and had some coffee. It tasted like coffee. And to just all the barbecue we've had, Belinda doing the podcast with her, which I think comes out in in December. But we just had a great time. Uh, Brian and Tricia McDerris are from our previous church, their previous church, and we got to fellowship together. It's just been fun. And so thank you so much for your hospitality. But I'm really looking forward this morning to the time that we're going to have in these two chapters. So let me, let me tell you a story to set this up. And these songs that we've been singing, I'd never seen that song, Oh, But God, but I love the but gods of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, following the course of this world, darkened in your understanding. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy. That's, those are just beautiful passages in the Bible. And that last one is... is put out by a friend of mine named Justin Unger. And the first time I heard that song, I just thought, wow, I just love this song. It brings tears to my eyes every time I sing it. You are always good. And those songs have everything to do with what we're going to be looking at this morning. But let me tell you a story. A few years back, I had a student come into my office 
And he sat down across from me and, and he said, I'm sorry, I've been missing some classes and I want you to know I'm probably going to be missing more classes in the future. I may miss the rest of the semester. And he told me about how his life had been spiraling out of control, drugs and alcohol and a child out of wedlock, out of wedlock. a lot of, I like that term too, wedlock wedlock, but they, just a lot of anger and hurt in their family, things said. I mean, it was just falling apart. And then Jesus stepped in because Jesus changes everything. But he had a past. And this is what the court records read. The defendant drove his Kia Soul across three lanes of traffic on the wrong side of a busy Orange County street and ran over a father and his three-year-old daughter who was in a stroller. Her mother was spared because she stopped walking when her husband suggested she fix her headband. Bystanders lifted the car off the girl, but she did not survive. The father suffered serious injuries, was placed in a medically induced coma, and recovered, fortunately, from his physical injuries completely a year later. So the student that was sitting across from me was eventually sentenced for 12 years in prison. I met someone on Thursday night from Vacaville, California. There's a prison there, and that's where he is right now. He and I still correspond. But now think about that story. I mean, can you imagine being the, the mother and father of this three-year-old little girl and some guy strung out on drugs, driving out of control down the street, runs over your precious daughter, and you lift her up off the pavement dead? And there's that guy right there. Can you imagine what that's like? Can you imagine what it's like for him every day, every night, thinking about what his actions caused in another family? Now, when we think about both of those parties, what I want us to realize is in his life, he committed an evil against this family that resulted in the, the loss of a loved one. He committed that. And I want you to think about this family. They received, they were the recipients of evil that was committed to them. And I want us to think about both parties because in this room, sin abounds. In our lives, sin abounds. Everyone in this room has sinned against someone. Maybe that's had little impact. Maybe it's had great impact. Everybody in this room has been sinned against by someone, and maybe that's been little impact or great impact, but all around this room, evils, sins have been committed against one another, and there, there can be hurt and bitterness in our heart as we think about that person that did that to us. Is there hope in the midst of that? Or we can be the ones just beating ourselves up. I can't believe I said or I did. Is there hope? For you, that's what we want to find in this passage this morning. And I think if I was to think about just a big point of what I want us to see in this passage is the pains or the evils, the sins that we experience in this world should never be our preoccupation. That's not where we set our eyes. Our occupation, preoccupation, our eyes need to be set on what the Lord is doing we are to keep our eyes on him instead of fixating on our 
experiences or circumstances, whether we're the ones that sinned against or whether we're the ones that have been sinned and we all have experienced both, we need to keep our eyes on the Lord instead. So I want to make five points as we work our way through this passage uh, this morning, these two chapters, 45 and 46. Now, the first two points I want to make are points that I want to make before we even get into chapter 45, because I think it's really important for us to grasp these points. So the first one is this. When we experience or cause, in other words, it's happened to us or we cause it to others, evil or pain in this world, we must call it evil or pain and not minimize it. We shouldn't just try to cover it up, pretend like nothing happened. We need to call it what it is. And so let's think back through the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph is beginning back in chapter 37 in verses 1 through 11. At 17 years old, we learn that he's hated by his brothers. And of course, when you walked into this story, you walked into a messed up family. Here's the youngest child getting the, the multicolored coat, prancing around in front of his brothers, having dreams that Jacob knew what was going on. We don't know if he flaunted those dreams. We, we, don't, we aren't really certain about Joseph. We just know his brothers hated him because he was his father's favorite. And then continuing in that chapter, they, they decide they want to get rid of him. Plan A is to kill him. Plan B is what's the one that they eventually follow. They see a slave caravan coming, and so they say, let's fake his death and, and sell him to this caravan these, these slave traders here and make some money off of him. And so they pull him up out of the pit and sell him. And then they go back to their dad. I mean, it just shows how messed up this is. They concoct this story. Tears, dad. I mean, here's his clothes. A wild animal. Just any mom and dad. Oh, dad. You know, it's like, what? I mean, who, who makes this stuff up? I mean, these brothers are just evil to him. Now, again, in this room, Maybe we haven't gone down a path like that, but there's been evils committed to others in this room, and there's been those who have received. Both have happened in this room because both happen in this world. So when we think about Joseph's story, we can ask a question. Is Joseph's only option to be bitter and angry at his brothers until his grave? Is that the only option he has for his brothers who we, we know eventually are, are bothered by this event in their life, is the only option they have to beat themselves up for the rest of their lives. Let's go back to that story I told earlier. It's the only option this mom and dad has is to be angry and bitter at this young man for the rest of their lives. Is the only option he has to beat himself up for the rest of his life for what he did. Are you following me on this? We've got both sides here. And it's evil. Let's call it evil. Let's don't say, hey, don't worry about it. It's all right. No, it was evil what happened in this particular situation. And, and Joseph's story continues. I mean, just remember, he, he's put in the Potiphar's house. He's over all of the affairs. And then his wife wants to have sex with him. Joseph, who seems to be a godly man, doesn't want to sin against the Lord. He refuses. She lies. He gets thrown into prison. In prison, he's an upright man. He's put in charge of things. There's a cupbearer and a baker there. They both have dreams. He interprets them. The baker dies just like he says. The cupbearer lives. Joseph says, Remembers me, remember me. The cupbearer gets back to Pharaoh, and he doesn't remember him. And there Joseph stays in prison. Then at age 30, 13 years later, 
Pharaoh has a dream. And the cupbearer remembers. They bring Joseph in there. Joseph gives this incredible interpretation of the dream, provides the Pharaoh with an incredible plan, and is put in second command over all of Egypt. And then we get to our chapter today, 45. And in verse 6, we see that Joseph is 39 years old when his brothers return 22 years later after that evil has been committed. And we've all done wrong. We've all committed wrongs. And we're not to pretend that those evils, those wrongs are are less than they are. We need to see them. Wrongs hurt, don't they? Words can damage. We, We sing that song, the wreckage of our lives. We can feel that. Tears should be real. But what I want us to understand is there is a bigger picture. And so when these kind of events happen in our lives, and again, it could be little events or big time traumatic events in your life, when they happen, we must see the bigger picture of what God is doing. The Lord is good all the time, all the time. God is good. Okay, we know this, and it's a good theological statement. It's who God is. And so as he's at work in this world, things are not slipping through his fingers. Ah, Sorry, didn't see that coming. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Sorry about that. No, things are not slipping through God's fingers. He's at work in this world. He's accomplishing something. And groaning is not to dominate our lives. There's hope. So in other words, there's hope for this family in the loss of their child. There's hope for my former student, even though he committed this incredible evil. There's hope for you on both sides of this equation as well. But how? So point number two, again, before we even get into our passage, point number two is we must not focus our eyes on our experiences, things that have happened to us or things that we've done. Again, we're not trying to minimize the evil, but don't put your focus there. We must focus our eyes on the Lord. Our eyes need to be lifted up to where the Lord is and what he's doing in this world. So when we think about Joseph's life, again, just looking back over the story in chapter 39, verse 9, when Potiphar's wife is trying to have sex with him, he says the words, how can I sin against God? He wants to be a man who's upright, who's pure, whose life is one of integrity, And so why did bad things happen to him if that's his attitude, if that's his heart posture? In chapter 40, we also know that he looked in dependency to the Lord for the interpretation of his dreams. He didn't push out his chest and say, I'm the man, I can can interpret dreams for you. He clearly recognized that interpretations of dreams belong to God. He gave the glory where the glory belonged. Even Pharaoh eventually recognizes your God, Joseph, is the one who does this. We also know that he understood the sovereignty of God in this world. When he's given the interpretation to the dream and he says this happens doubly because the thing has been fixed by God. God is the one who's in control of all of this. He's in control of the famine. He's in control of the the, the plan that's going to be put forth to, to be able to save Egypt and to save Jacob's family. We also see that there's a turning point in his life. At least it seems like to me as I work my way through this story. In chapter 41, in verses 50 to 52, it says, Before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, 
Asnath, the daughter of Potipharia, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, what Joseph is saying here is not, ah, it's just all forgotten. What Joseph is saying is, my mind is no longer fixed on that. God has done something here. He's made me fruitful. He's got these two sons, and there's something going on in Joseph's life when he names these kids. But think about how many nights he must have cried out to the Lord. Another miserable day in prison. Another miserable day separated from my family. Those brothers of mine, he could have been saying. But through it all, Joseph, it seems, was seeking to be a godly man, serving the Lord in his circumstances, making the best of his situation, even in prison, and trusting the Lord with the outcome. Through it all, Joseph kept his eyes on the Lord. In our posture in life, again, when we're in the midst of evil, evil being committed to us or us committing evil to others, we we don't just stand in bitterness and anger the rest of our lives. We don't beat ourselves up the rest of our lives. No, we also fix our eyes on the Lord, believing that God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. We just believe that by faith. He is working, regardless of whether we're we're the ones that receive evil or we're the ones that actually distribute evil. God is working in the midst of it all, and we see that in this story. It's phenomenal for us to watch this. We can't just see what we see in our experiences. We've got to see beyond that. Even in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in verses 16 through 18, where it talks about momentary light affliction is nothing to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. It uses these words, while we look not at the things we are, that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. There's something going on that we can't see. All we have is the experiences right in front of us, but God is working beyond them, and we can look beyond them as well in our own life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, it says, we walk by faith, not by, not by sight, not by what we see, we continue to walk as men and women of God, committing ourselves to his ultimate purposes in life, despite what we might see as the evidence of life. We have to keep our eyes where they belong. In, chapter, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, it's talking through the whole hall of faith. And one of the things it says is these, these died without actually even receiving what was promised to them. They realized that they were working for something far beyond themselves, a heavenly city, that they were pilgrims and exiles in this land, and you are too. This is not our home. And so we have to keep our eyes beyond us and the things that God is doing. This is way bigger than us and our little piddly lives. Again, not trying to minimize evils that we've committed or that have been committed to us, but it's real little in light of God's bigger plans. Even in Romans 8, 24 and 25, it talks about hope that is is seen is not hope. We have hope. We're longing for something beyond this world. God is always doing something that is not completely clear to us. But how is this helpful to know? Now we move into our passage, chapter 45 and verse 1. Let me read uh, some of this for us this morning. 
Chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. And so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brother, come near me, please. And they came near and said, and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here. You clear on that? It's not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and rule over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. And he goes on down through the story. And we see in this passage, a third point, what we experience in this life is never fully explained by what we experience in this life. What we experience in this life is never fully explained by what we experience in this life. Joseph's confidence in the Lord is bold. He knew there was more to his situation than his angry, evil brothers who sold him into slavery and wrecked his life. He knew there was more to that. He could rest in the goodness of God. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. He could know that. He could hold on to that. He, he knew that there was, he was a part of a bigger story, that God was at work. I mean, look how many times he says it. Verse five, God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse seven, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And then again in verses eight and nine, he says it again. It was not you who sent me here, but God. God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. He recognizes this. He realizes that there are events that have happened to him, but they can't be explained simply by those events. There's something bigger going on. In the same way, when Jesus went to the cross, it looked like evil people were putting him on the cross. But instead, when Jesus reached out his hand, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even in that event, all oh, the religious leaders thought they were getting their way and getting rid of this religious man that the masses were following, but there was something way bigger going on. And we've all benefited from that. There was a bigger picture. And we get how Jesus could do that, but how in the world could Joseph do that? To the ones who had destroyed his life, and still give God the glory. You see, this requires a maturity that all of us need to be striving for. Joseph's life is a model for us. 
about how to walk through evil that has been committed to himself and also how others who have committed that evil are to walk through it. He held on to the sovereignty of the Lord. He trusted his goodness every step of the way. He realized that he had been forgiven much and that he could extend that forgiveness to others. And you can too. You can too. Some of you need to forgive others or at least have an attitude of forgiveness because they've done evil to you. In a church this size, there's, there's, no, there's no doubt that there's been all kinds of abuses, physical, sexual, emotional. It could even be happening right now. Do you understand? In our midst, there could be evils that could be taking place. Those that are being committed and those who are receiving it. And the Bible instructs us how do we are to live in the midst of all of this. I mean, think about passages like Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, again, when I read that passage and when Paul writes that passage, we're not trying to minimize evil. That's why my first point is so important. Evil is evil and don't minimize it. But in the midst of that, we put our eyes on the Lord. We realize there's a bigger picture. We realize God is doing something and therefore we can forgive one another. In Colossians 3.13, I actually want to back up to verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion and kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive one another. Not trying to minimize anything here. Just trying to grow a heart that is like Jesus so that we can live like Jesus does. And how can you do that? Because you realize there's something way bigger going on. The experiences of your life cannot be explained by the experiences of your life. There's something way bigger. God is at work in others. He's at work in you. Joseph lived this. And we can learn from this and we can live it as well. And so God does provide in this story. God does do above and beyond what Joseph even asked, what Jacob could even imagine. He was at work. And so we see in this chapter in verses 10 and 11 that they do receive a place to live, that they receive provision, that they're going to survive the famine. God is good. We see that Pharaoh gives them the best of the land and many gifts. We look over to chapter 46, verse 6, and we see their present livestock would also be preserved. All of this. Looking ahead to chapter 47, verse 12, all 70 in Jacob's family are going to come down and be provided for. And then in chapter 47, verse 27, we see, again, they were fruitful and multiplied. These are words that go all the way back to Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply. God's still at work doing that with his people. Even in the midst of the pain of Joseph's life and the evils being committed against him, this is big picture stuff that we can't even get our minds wrapped around. And remember, from the very beginning, we've been told in chapter 39 in verses 2 and 3 that the Lord was with Joseph every step of the way. 
Later on in chapter 39, in verses 21 to 23, again, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord may have seemed silent, but he was not absent in the story. He was with him every step of the way. He was with him when he was falsely accused. He was with him when his brothers were angry and sold him to a slave caravan, concocted a story to his father. The Lord was with Joseph every step of the way. It may not have felt like it to Joseph all the time. Why was God allowing these things to happen to him? And maybe you've had the same questions as well. And that's why stories like this are important for us, because we get to step back and realize, oh, wow, it's possible for God to work in that way. And so you think about your most painful moment, either something that was committed against you or something that you committed against someone else. In the midst of that very moment, the Lord is with you. Whether you committed it or whether it was committed against you, the Lord is with you in the midst of all of that. And he is the only one who can redeem any of it. Jesus is the only one who changes anything. And he can be at work in our lives. We may not be able to see, we may not be able to explain what God is doing, but we can know that it is good. The song we just sang, sometimes we sing songs by faith, don't we? You're always good. And sometimes we sing that by faith because the evidence of life is not there. And it gets better. Point number four, even when we cause the evil and pain to another, we must realize that the, word, the Lord is working above and beyond what we can see. Even when we damage, we're the ones that bring about the wreckage in someone else's life. Now, this is really hard to get our minds wrapped around. Even when we're the ones that cause it, if we put our eyes on the Lord, we can realize that God is doing something over there that we could never imagine even when we feel like we're the whole cause of that. Look at chapter 45 and verse three. This is what Joseph says. And Joseph said to his brother, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. A better translation of that is they were terrorized. My wife says the NIV says terrified. Can you imagine what this was like for them? What in the world? There he is, the one that they caused evil toward is right there in front of them. All of those years previous, and there he is with the power to crush them if he wanted to. We know that it has not left their minds. Back in chapter 42, when Joseph was toying with them, they looked back and realized, you know what we did to our brother? It's coming to haunt us now. You see, they had not forgotten. There were probably nights when they dreamed, where they went in bed at night, where they saw their father grieving. They were haunted by this throughout. But Joseph tries to help his brothers lift their eyes. Look at verse five. And now he looks at them, looks them right in the eye and says, do not be distressed or angry. Don't be terrorized. Don't be angry with yourselves. What? Maybe this would be a good time for Joseph to give it to them for all that they had done for him, against him. And he says, don't be distressed. Don't even be angry at yourselves. Why? 
For God sent me here before you to preserve life. Later on, Joseph's going to use the words, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Down in verse 8, we also see again, he says to his brothers, so it was not you, it was not you who sent me here. Oh, no, wait a second, Joseph, check your facts. Don't you, don't you remember? They brought all of this on you. They're the cause of all of this. It was not you who sent me here, but God. God did this. Even though it was evil, and the ones who are responsible for it are standing right in front of him. Joseph puts his eyes on the Lord and acknowledges the Lord's sovereignty through it all. Even though it was evil, he puts it into the hands of the Lord. As a parent, you damage your kids to varying degrees. You know it. There's not a perfect parent in this room. If we could go back, we would change things we said, certain events. But hold on to this. The Lord is doing something you, you cannot see. As a spouse, you have an affair and perhaps wreak some wreckage in your family, yet the Lord is doing something you cannot see. You commit an evil that hurts someone deeply, yet the Lord is doing something you cannot see. As a drunken driver, you go across three lanes of traffic like this former student of mine, run over a three-year-old girl. They pick her up off the body, dead. Yet the Lord is doing something that we cannot see. You end an argument with words that cut deep into another person's heart. You wished you could take them back. But the Lord is doing something you cannot see. You see, nothing is beyond the redeeming work of the Lord. Even evil, God can use it to bring about good in someone else's life. It all depends on where we keep our eyes. Are we fixated on the experience, on the circumstances, or do we put our eyes on the Lord? Do we think that we can explain everything by what we can see, or do we think there might be more to this story? Some of you potentially are beating yourselves up for things that you've done. You need to put your eyes on the Lord and have hope because the Lord is doing something you cannot see. Some of you are on the other side holding it against someone because of what they've done to you. How dare them? And you need to forgive because the Lord is doing something you cannot see. Can we find hope today? Point number five is this. On every page of the Bible, on every single page of the Bible, we see that the Lord is advancing his plans. This is not about you. This is about the Lord and what he's doing. And we can know that he's doing that in our lives as well. Look at chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel took his journey with that all, all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. 
And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes, and we could go on. But here's what I want you to see. Sometimes when we read verses like this, it sounds like blah, 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 blah. But when you read these verses and you have an understanding of what's going on in Genesis, and I want to give that to you right now, when you read these verses with an understanding of what's going on in Genesis, all you hear is Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where God set up a covenant with Abraham and said, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to be with you. And those who bless you, I'm going to bless. And those who curse you, I'm going to curse. And through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And what we have going on right here in the midst of all of this mess, all of the wreckage of life, what we have is an affirmation that God is still advancing his purposes. Nothing is stopping God. Messed up family and all their wreckage, as long as they keep their eyes on the Lord, God continues to move all of this stuff forward. It's amazing when we think about it. And so much stuff that we cannot explain. And we can ask questions like, why did God do it this way? I mean, come on, this story could be a little bit different. Why does it have to be so messy? Why does there have to be so much wreckage? I mean, every step along the way in the book of Genesis, it's been like, what in the world? This is an R-rated movie. This, this has got a lot of messed up stuff in it. Why did God do it this way? And then you might ask about your own life. Why did God allow this? Why does our family have to be so messed up and others seem to be so polished and perfect? Well, if you could just peek inside of everybody's family, everybody's asking the same thing. Why does God allow it to be that way? Why did God allow this to happen to you or that to happen to you? Why didn't God just stop you before you made a fool of yourself and brought about this wreckage? We can ask those questions until we're blue in the face. And this is where I bring in my favorite theological term. It's above your pay grade. (laughs) It's just above your pay grade. And that's what Joseph models for us, isn't it? It's above his pay grade. So he's able to look at his brothers and say, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. You didn't send me here. Don't be all full of yourself and don't beat yourself up either. Because God was doing something that we cannot see. And he's doing the same in our midst today. This is the way God works. He's still doing it. With all the evils and pains that are in this room, you committed them or they were committed against you. God is at work in the midst of all of that. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. You are always good, we can sing, because he is. And some of us need to hold on to that tightly by faith. But for all of us, it needs to become a deepened confidence in our lives because that's who he is. So as we come to the end of this, I just, I don't know what part of this you needed to hear the most. I don't know if you feel more deeply the, the evils against you and you need to see a bigger picture that God's doing something you cannot see. One of the favorite books I've read in life about parenting is Parenting Adolescence by Kevin Huggins. And I really think it's good for all parents. But here, here's his ultimate point. 
when you as a parent are looking at your teenagers and they're just so messed up and they're wrecking your life, how dare them talk to me that way? Who do they think they are? I wiped your butt when you were a baby. I mean, all these things that you can feel and you feel like they need to change. If we could fix our adolescence, then we would have a good family again, whatever it might be. Kevin Huggins has a, has a thesis in his book that says this. No, it's really about you. Whatever God has missed in your sanctification process up to this point, he's going to revisit through your adolescent children. Because God is at work. He's at work through all this stuff. And what do we end up doing? We try to point the finger at other people. And there's a bigger picture that God is up to. And you as an adolescent might think, where did I get these parents? They're all messed up. No, God is at work in you too. God brings us all together with all of our messed up stuff and he works in us, doing stuff we cannot see. And so let's, let's put our eyes where they belong. Let's do that right now. Lord, please. Life is so much bigger than us as individuals. And Lord, you are working far beyond what we can see. And so, Lord, I pray for every one of us in this room. Help us to see you high and lifted up. Help us to trust your purposes. Help us to believe that you are always good, that you are doing things that we cannot see, that we cannot explain our experiences by simply looking at our experiences. You might even want to cup your hands right now and lift them to the Lord, just, just symbolically, whatever it is that you're wrestling with right now, and you just give it to the Lord and say, Lord, let me see how you see, and let me live in the way that you have called me to live. And so, Lord, all of us around the room right now, we give our lives to you. Do your work in us, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.